Good morning. It's always great to welcome new members. Great service. Okay, um, today we're going to continue our series on prayer. And as you know, Pastor Tim kind of announced last week that this year in 2016, we really felt impressed upon the Lord, from the Lord, to really step up the teaching and the training in the area of prayer. Prayer is such an important tool, and we feel that in these last days, we really need to ramp up our understanding, and not just our understanding, but our practice of prayer. So we've actually slated on our calendar for eight teachings this year on prayer on Sundays. In addition to that, on Wednesdays, what we've decided to do is model those types of prayer to you. So last week, Pastor Tim taught six types of prayer, and then last Wednesday, we actually modeled those types of prayer in the congregation. So learning both through theory and the applied practice of those, because the church is a safe place to train and equip you so that when you go out, you're ready to do these things. Uh, This week, I want to talk to you about the prayer of agreement, or the prayer of unity. And as a church, our prayers should should, uh, unite us and bring us into a greater unity with one another. And I think right now, we're seeing in the, the world, the church is so divided. The lack of unity in the church is just appalling to most people. And the world sees it. And we're starting to get relegated to the back of the line, no more being seen as a group to be reckoned with in the earth. You're even seeing it with the political commentators, aren't you? They used to talk about the fundamentalist Christian block as a block of voters. And now, because we're so fragmented, we're so um, in disunity, that we're starting to even be discounted by even the political pundits and commentators as no longer a relevant block of voters. And so how can we get back together? And so this isn't a political message. This is a message about how do we get back to unity in the spirit. So today's scripture is found in Matthew, and if you want to read along, it's Matthew 18, 18 through 20. It says here in Matthew, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this talks about our governmental authority, and Pastor Tim covered this last week in one of the types of prayer as authoritative prayer. But this leads into the part I want to cover today. It says, again, I tell you that if any two of you on earth agree on anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So let's pray. Lord, we just pray right now that as we come together, that you said in your word, if two or more would come together and agree, that you would be there among us. So Lord, we acknowledge your very presence here today. We just pray for your anointing on this teaching and that you would help us to understand deeper how to pray and how to come together in the spirit of unity in Jesus' name. It's interesting because this scripture is found in the context of church conflict and conflict with another brother. And again, I think last week, if you, have, if you didn't hear the message, you can listen to it on our website. But I think Pastor Tim did a great job He's my boss, so I'm saying that. But he did a great job because he addressed that it's got a greater context than just the context of Matthew 18. 
So I think the principle is kind of a universal principle. So I agree with that assessment, but I think it's interesting, its placement is what happens when there's disunity and there's disagreement. Here's, here's a possibility for us to become super united, is if we can come together in agreement. And if you're not familiar with Matthew 18, it's something that every Christian has to study because it's our process how to be reconciled one to another. And it actually has an escalation process so that when you have aught with a brother or a sister, how do you get that back on track? Because we're not supposed to live with unforgiveness or bitterness or resentment. We're supposed to model to the world unity. Amen? So Matthew 18 gives us a process for restoration. So you need to study that. You need to know that. But one of the great promises is what happens when we all come together. I was doing a little research on just the separation that we see in the church, and so this slide shows you. Right now, I was surprised. I figured there'd probably be about three or four hundred different denominations, and uh, I really didn't think there'd be more than a thousand. But right now, the estimates are there's 33,000 to 43,000 Christian denominations, and it breaks down into six major segments. You have the independents which are 22,000, Protestants, 9,000. And this research actually had the list of all the names of all these different sects and divisions within the Christian church. You have the marginals, the Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Anglicans. So can you imagine what the world sees when they look at the Christian church? They see 33,000 different denominations and separations in the church so it's no wonder why our message is being watered down a little bit. We say that we're supposed to be willing to lay our lives down for one another, but um, are we really willing to do that? I remember I was involved in a church workout in Rochester back in the um, early 90s, I believe it was, and we were under the authority of a man who I really feel had a very apostolic calling, and so we had a lot of churches that wanted to join with us. And so we had a group of three churches that wanted to join with our church and come under our leader's authority. And we met together, the men, the elders, and the pastors, for, for probably a year, just comparing doctrine and theology. And once we felt that that was all straight, that we were all in agreement, then we started to have quarterly meetings with the other three churches. So there were four churches in agreement. And so as we came together, we would have these big corporate quarterly meetings run out of facility, and they were pretty powerful. And by the time we got to the fourth one, our, our church was going to lead the worship, and the first two songs were hymns, everything was going great, and the third song, our worship leader kicked the drum machine on, on his keyboard, and three-fourths of the assembly walked out. We're like, what in the world is going on here? So we chased the leaders and said, what's happening? He said, well, we can't worship with you if you have a drum beat in your worship music. So almost two years of meeting together, and we found a way to divide ourselves over something as simple as a drum beat. And if we would have talked this through, we probably could have came up with some kind of compromise, but it was a non-negotiable. After two years, we discovered a non-negotiable. And I'll tell you what, it's very telling, isn't it? What will we separate over and we're supposed to lay our lives down for one another. How are we going to do that if we can't even get along in something as simple as that? So 
the thing is, is we need to strive for unity and not uniformity. And I think we get the two sometimes mixed up. And so they wanted everything to be uniform. The only time Christians should be in uniformity is in the cemetery, right? Just lined up in rows in the cemetery. Outside of that, we should be diverse. We should show all the facets of Christ, all the different ways that Christ displays himself in the earth. And so each assembly should have its own flavor, its own character, its own expression of Christ. And so don't be tempted to say everybody has to worship exactly the same. Everybody has to pray exactly the same. And that's why I think prayer is such a stumbling block to so many people because a lot of people get offended in the prayer room because you don't structure or craft your prayer exactly the way I do mine, right? And so we, we see a lot of that in the prayer room. If we could just agree on who Jesus is, what he accomplished, the authority of scriptures, then I think we can be somewhat tolerant of the other issues. Unity doesn't require uniformity. The basis of our unity is our mutual membership in Christ. And so we have to remember that. It's all about Christ. And the minute we start getting into some of these peripheral things and we stress our preferences over Jesus, I think that's when we get off the, off the tracks. I think a good place to start with doctrinal unity is with the Apostles' Creed. I think it's just masterful. It sums up our statement of faith in a paragraph, and it hits all the doctrinal principles that I think are necessary for agreement. So if we can agree that Jesus was the Son of God, he was God, he came to earth through a virgin, that he died, he resurrected, and he lives again, and he's coming back. I think if we can agree on those tenets found in the Apostles' Creed, I think we have the basis of unity. Amen? Amen. So prayer, as we get into prayer, the prayer room is the great leveler, is how I like to think of it, because what it does, it eliminates all race, all classes, all social um, stigmas, because everybody's the same in the prayer room. Each one of our prayers have equal weight, equal footing. Amen? We're on the equal footing as children of God. Each one of us counts the same to God because we know that the Lord says he's no respecter of persons. And so we need to understand that when we are in the prayer room, my prayers have just as much weight and authority as the believer next to me. And so each one of us equally moves the heart of God. And for those of you who are parents here today, you understand that principle, don't you? You love all your children, and, and you would do anything for any of your children. So when your children come together in agreement and they ask, and how much more would you do if all your children came together and said, Mom, Dad, we would like to do this. And when they're in agreement, you'd do just about anything, right? Because... Most of your time is used uh, breaking up fights and schisms and things like that, trying to keep them together. But when we come together in agreement, it's got to move the heart of God because it will move the heart of earthly men, earthly women. The prayer closet is the birthing room for unity in the spirit. You want to start getting united in a church, united in the spirit, united with another group of people. If you want to go deep really fast, start to pray together because there's something about prayer that is kind of like super glue that just knits our hearts together. There's nothing like it. It's where we come together and we actually get the full counsel of God because as we begin to pray, as we begin to appreciate each other's approach to God, we start to see that God is a lot bigger than our viewpoint. 
and we start to hear all these different perspectives that each person has of God. You know, even in a family, isn't it true if you were to interview children in a family, what do you think about your dad? Some might say he's a very harsh man. Some might say he's a very loving man. You know, you would get all these different descriptions of the same person. And how much is it true when we come together in the prayer room that everybody has a concept of God? And, and it's amazing when we come together and we get that true koinonia. You know, we keep talking about we need to build koinonia. And you can't do it through teaching. You can't through it, do it through programs. You can't do it through um, books. You can only do it through coming together. And prayer, to me, is one of the fastest ways to develop and grow koinonia, if that's your goal, is to get there. Agreement is essential. A husband and wife who can come together and pray in agreement can move mountains. I'll tell you what, if you have wayward children, if you have prodigals, husbands, wives, come together and begin to pray. I know a lot of you have been praying for a long time, but all I can tell you is don't give up because that power of agreement, when two believers can come together on anything, the word promises us that it will be done for us. Amen? And I believe that with all my heart. And so husbands, wives, a great place to shore up your marriage is in the prayer room. If you can begin to pray together, it will lead your marriage deeper into other places where you'll, you'll just have a, a healthy, balanced marriage. It's also, to me, the beginning of the microchurch. I've talked to you guys several times about the microchurch. It's a concept I'm really excited about because the definition of a microchurch is where you have two or more believers who are on assignment. So that means wherever you go, you're in church, right? You're at church when you're at work. All you have to do is find one other believer in the workplace and say, hey, why don't we get together? Why don't we pray? Why don't we do a Bible study? Why don't we speak life? Why don't we try to change the atmosphere in this place? And the best way to do that is by two or more getting together and praying. And once you start to fire up those prayers, it begins to move the heavens and change the atmosphere. So I just want to encourage you that two or more, that's all it takes because the math, the multiplication when two or more come together, it can move mountains. I long for the day, instead of people asking you the question on the street, hey, where do you go to church? Wouldn't it be amazing if people said to you, hey, where do you go to pray? Where do you go to pray? Well, on Mondays I go to pray at work. On Tuesdays I go to pray at school. On Wednesdays I go to pray at C3. On Thursdays, you know, each place that you go, you're on assignment. Each place you go, you find the place of prayer, because you understand the importance and how much prayer can change things. So the prayer of agreement, when you come together, because as, as we saw today, as we took in new believers, the question was asked, how can two walk together unless they be agreed, right? So that agreement moves us forward, it propels us forward. All those of you sitting in this assembly that are members of this church understand where we're going, where we're heading, and you like that vision, you agree with that vision so much that you say, I want to go where you guys are going. And how much would it be if all those people and friends and coworkers, all those in your sphere of influence say, I'm in agreement with you. I want to go where you're going. I like what you're doing. I like what you're saying. And that's, that's important because that's where you begin to change the world. I like this 
next scripture, it's Acts 1, 4 through 5. And this is talking about how the church was launched, how the church was, was birthed. So this is Luke's account. So Luke wrote Acts, right? And he says that, I just want to give you a complete detailed account of what happened with Christ in the early church. And so he starts off by saying, as you know, Christ was crucified, he rose from the dead, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then Acts 1 says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the Gospels ended with Jesus saying, go and make disciples. So he said, go. He gave the green light, didn't he? But Luke says, wait a second. He actually said, wait. (laughs) So do we go or do we wait? Now he tells a group of fishermen and the apostles we know are men of actions. We have a lot of accounts of who they are. The worst thing you can do is tell a man, hold up, wait. But what does Luke say? He said, he said wait. Go, don't leave Jerusalem, just wait. So I don't know about you, but when I pray and I get the go words, I love it. You pray about something and God says, go do it. That's how I was brought up. My mother was such an encourager. Whatever I had in my mind to do, I would bounce it off my mom, and I could count on her every time to say, go for it, just go. Don't even has, don't think about it. Just go and do it. And so the go words are easy words, right? The yes words, when the Lord answers yes to your prayers, that's an easy word. I like those words. The second words I like are the no words, or the, uh, the stop words, like stop what you're doing. Don't do that. That's going to be a big mistake. Or when the Lord says, no, don't, don't do it. Those are easy words, aren't they? God said it. That settles it. I'm in tune with him enough to know that he's got some greater reason in his cosmic experience that it would be a big mistake if I went ahead and ignored that no. So I'm okay with no words. But what are the worst words you can get? It's those wait words, aren't they? And so he tells the disciples, he tells the apostles to wait. So God uses the waiting room experiences of life to promote our spiritual growth. He redirects our priorities and he helps to use it to develop godly character. In this particular case, in the book of Acts, God wanted the church to learn how to pray. And not just pray in general, but how to pray together. So they met every day, and what did they do? They learned to pray. And as they began to pray, what happened? God showed up, right? He began to show up. So the next thing that we have in the book of Acts, the next account, they're starting to pick a replacement for Judas. And so as they chose Matthias, in Acts 1.14, you want to look at that, it says they are all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. So Luke wants to make sure that we understand that they were all together constantly in prayer. That's Acts 1. That's chapter 1 of the church. And that's how the church was launched. That's how the church started. And so I wanted to point out three things to you on these prayers. 
Number one, they were unanimous. They were all together. Luke wants to stress that everything that the church did, they did together. It says all of them. They were united. It was unanimous. And so as a church body, we need to do things together. This should be the place where you want to go first, not the place you want to go last. You know, so many times people are thinking of excuses. How can I get out of church? You know, what can I do that? That should even enter your mind. You should be like, boom, I'm there. No reservation. That's where I want to be. There's no place else that could trump church, right? I loved it when we were running the prayer room and sometimes these kids would get invited to go to laser tag. We had every youth pastor in Macomb County ticked off at us because on Friday nights, some of these kids would say, I'm going to prayer. But the youth pastors would say, but we're doing laser tag because laser tag trumps everything in the spiritual realm, right? But these kids were confounding them because they said, no, we want to go to prayer. Why? Because it was koinonia. They were getting together. They were experiencing love. They had a community. They couldn't wait to meet with one another. And the thought of doing something frivolous to them, even though it was fun and it was a good thing to do, and I'm not knocking youth pastors, I hope you hear my heart on this, but they had discovered something deeper, something that they craved more, as they wanted to see their friends that they were praying with, their friends that they had true koinonia with. And so it was a little confounding to some people. But they were unanimous. They wanted to be all together. We know the math that when you get together, the scripture says when, when um, one can send a thousand to flight, two ten thousand. We know that the reward on work is greater when one person does something if you invite a second person, right? And Proverbs tells us that the return isn't just twofold. It's way more than twofold because if I can lift 100 pounds and you can lift 100 pounds, when we get together collectively, the expectation would be we could lift 200. But you know what? We can actually lift 300 pounds because the return on our work is so much better. So they were unanimous. The second thing is they were harmonious. It says they all joined together constantly. That joined together is in uh, King James, one accord, which is the Greek word homo Thomadon, which means to stress harmony in their prayers. They were one accord. And it's a musical term that means to strike the notes together. When you're in a symphony, you're all using the same sheet music. And so you're in unity on the score that you're playing. But in a symphony, there's not total uniformity because what? There's all different instruments up here. What if in a symphony, all you had to stay uniform, all bass players? I'd be okay with that, by the way, but it might be boring to you because if it was just six bass players up here, it wouldn't have the depth, it wouldn't have the feel, it wouldn't have the flavor that a symphony has as everybody closed together harmonious, would it? So that's the thought behind that. When they were in one accord, it was like a symphony. And so when you're in a prayer meeting and that prayer goes up and it's in unity, it's one in accord, it's harmonious to God, and it rises to the heaven as music to God's ears. And a discordant sound sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? But the early church, there were no wrong notes. There are no ugly attitudes. There is no pointing of fingers, no pity parties, no gossip. I, I remember when I was first being witnessed to by, by two believers in the workplace. One was a fundamentalist, and one was a charismatic. i got to tell you, I was so confused. I was ready to chuck it all 
because I didn't know who to believe. I didn't know what to believe. And you know what? It was, it was dissonant to me. It was dissonant notes. It was just clanging cymbals. And they were both trying to vie for my time and my attention. If one saw the other one talking to me, the other one would jump and talk to me. And I was just like, I'd leave the day like, oh my God, these Christians are driving me nuts. Because I didn't know who to believe. I really didn't. Because they weren't in unity. Finally, one day, I overheard them talking. And they said, we got to get into agreement. We're losing this guy. We are losing this guy. And, and they agreed to drop their differences. They didn't know I was on the other side of the wall. And that's the best thing they could have did because, you know what? When they came together in agreement, they had me sold. That sold me. So are you discordant? Are you being dissident? Are you in harmony with the other Christians in your life? We've got to stop uh, criticizing because either um, you'll stop criticizing I'm sorry, um, either you'll stop criticizing people or, or you'll stop praying. So, you know, if you have a critical heart towards other people, you need to stop that. You need to start praying because, again, prayer will heal that rift and heal your heart. The last thing is on the prayer is it says they all joined together constantly. So they were continuous in prayer. And the thought there is constantly, some translations say continual, some say continued earnest. But the thought is it was obstinate determination. They were deadly serious about their prayer. And there's nothing more dangerous than people who come together in the prayer room who are deadly serious. Because you know what? They understand they're on a mission from God. They understand that they have the power and authority to pull heaven to earth. And when you're in a company that has that belief, boy, look out. Amen? So... Moving quickly, I want to look at the prayer meeting at Pentecost. So as we know, Pentecost is the Feast of First Fruits, and it's 50 days after Passover. And it says in Acts 2, 1 through 12, put it up for you. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, um, Phygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So at this meeting, we have all these nations represented, and all of a sudden, they hear the, the prayers going up in their own language. Right now, there's about 6,500 spoken languages in the world today. But unity can only exist if God's Spirit gives us a new heart and a new language, a new ability to communicate. And Pentecost is that new beginning. 
I like what Pope Benedict said. He said on Pentecost, where there was division and incomprehension, unity and understanding were born. was born. Can you imagine that? Unity was born. In fact, the Pope called it the Feast of Unity, because in that prayer meeting, unity was born amongst all the nations. And as I was thinking about this, as I was meditating on this, and this is just, uh, I know this is a stretch. I'm just trying to connect a dot here. So I'm going to say up front, this might be conjecture, because I don't have doctrinal proof. But as I was thinking about 6,500 languages, and how at this time, all these nations had their own way of communicating. They had their own language. And I started thinking about how the language got scattered. And we all know the story. It was at the Tower of Babel, right? And so um, I have a friend from down south, and he said, Southerners can get away with saying anything they want. It doesn't even have to be true, as long as you end with the phrase, I'm just saying. So I'm just saying <laughs> that maybe there's a connection here. He also told me that you can say anything about anybody. You can even gossip about them, as long as you end it with, Lord bless their heart. <laughs> so it's a little tip for you. But in Genesis 11, it gives us how the languages became confused, right? It says, now when the world had one language and one common speech, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they begun to do this, there's nothing they planned to do that would be impossible with them. So common speech and unity is what's being used against us as Christians. Because our speech, our language is so confused, and at the day of Pentecost, God gave us a common language. But that's how all the issues of the day are being passed. Because we can't get our language together. We can't get our ducks in a row enough to win the day. So every issue that comes down the pike at us, be it um, gay marriage, be it abortion, anything, just fill in the blank, we lose the battle because the opponents are so agreed in their language, they're so agreed in their mission, that we're so busy fighting the battle on so many fronts that we lose the issue that's on the table for that day. Amen? And we refuse to hold the ground that we've been given. So I think, again, if we can get together and use the common language that we've been given, we can begin to win the day. Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost, he talks about the gospel and he says, this is that which Joel prophesied, right? He says, your sons and daughters prophesy, your young men have vision." Your old men will dream dreams. And he's saying that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's very simple, isn't it? All that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. We've made it so hard. We've made it so difficult. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know if you're saved or not, all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And again, I'm just saying, I don't know if this is true, but what if when Peter spoke that sermon, if out of his mouth was all these languages, it's up to 14 different languages that were going up in the air that day, but I sometimes think, you know, we know the tongues that were flying were heard in different languages, but what if when Peter gave that sermon and he told them, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, if each person, because he addresses it to all those from Judea, doesn't he? From the surrounding areas, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So, 
It's amazing to think if that's really what was happening. And then the end of that chapter says that they were amazed and perplexed. Acts 2.44 says that together they had everything in common, enjoyed the favor of the people, and they were added to their numbers daily because they had this one accord. They were in agreement. They had this prayer. John 17, just want to look at that real quick. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is when Jesus is praying for all believers. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. Alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the, their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me and I am you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and that you love me, even if I've loved them. And so the goal, Jesus' heart, is that we be in unity. That was the prayer that he prayed for us before he left. He said, I pray that they would be in unity. And how does he model unity? He models unity in his prayer closet as he's praying to God. And in that prayer, he says, might they be united as we're united, as we're united here in prayer. And so that's the place we go to for unity. Why the world doesn't believe that we are one and why Christ came, why they debate that, is because we don't display, we don't show the unity that we've been required to show. This is a, a quote by a guy named Lloyd Ogilvie. He says, I've never known a contentious group to receive the Holy Spirit, nor have I ever seen a church in which division and disunity prevailed receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? Have you ever seen a group that was contentious, that was divided, be blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit? You want the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get it with these petty divisions. He goes on to say, if we want the power from the Holy Spirit as individuals, we need to do relational inventory. Is everyone forgiven? Any restitutions to be done? Any need to communicate healing? Any, as congregations, we cannot be empowered until we are of one mind and one heart, until we love each other as Christ loved us, and until we heal all broken relationships. The price seems high, but it's a bargain price for what can happen through Pentecostal prayer. Amen. I love that quote. That's amazing. I wish we could spend more time on it. But we need to get it right. We need to do that inventory. We need to go through that checklist so that when we come together, we come in agreement, and there's no division, there's no disunity. Jesus said a house divided is a house that will fail. Right now, we're that divided house, and we need to get back on track. We need to come back together in unity. And Jesus says the prescription for that divided house is to become a house of prayer. He said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. The thing that should characterize us the most is usually the thing that is characterizing us the least. And I hope you understand my heart when I say us, I'm talking about the church at large, not this church, okay? So um, I think we're beginning to feel the rumblings and the shakings of Pentecostal power. I'm really excited about it because there's a new wave coming, isn't there? There's a new excitement. There's a new fascination. There's a new revival of prayer that is leading the path to revival. And I'm just excited to see it. We're starting to see stadiums being filled again. 
with Christians coming together. You have the call, you have the outcry, we have Bethel Knights, and all these young people are coming to fill these stadiums, and it's just amazing to watch. Last Saturday, there was the call Azusa, marking the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street revival that broke out all over America and gave birth to the Pentecostal movement. So they rented out the LA Coliseum, $5 million, to get 100,000 believers together in one place praying. You gotta believe the ground was shaking in that place. There were signs and wonders, there were miracles. Uh, a lot of young people I know that were out there saw people receive their hearing again, receive their sight again. People were liberated from the wheelchairs because the power of God was mighty in that place. I used to go to the call in Kansas City that happened on New Year's. And New Year's Eve, I remember being in Bartle Hall, which is the equivalent of Cobo Hall in Kansas City. 30,000 people praying in the New Year. And the concrete was vibrating. The concrete was flexing. We know in Acts it said when they prayed, the place was shaken. And this was an Acts 2 moment. The place was shaken. I turned to my wife. I said, I don't think concrete is supposed to do this. <laughs> As that floor was flexing under the weight of the excitement and the rhythm and the har harmony of these believers praying in the new year. It was like a seismic shift in the atmosphere that went up from that place. And so last Saturday, we had this call, Azusa. I guarantee you, the earth is shaking out there. And so we need to come together. The 24-7 prayer movement that has been birthed, it's a global prayer movement. Prayer going up all over the world. It's just amazing. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that move to begin to add to those prayers of the saint, to be unanimous, to be harmonious, and to be continuous in our prayer. I just want to end with, at the end of the age, we know the greatest agreement is going to come between the Spirit and the Bride, right? We know at the end of the age, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. I want to be in that prayer meeting as the Bride of Christ, joining with the Holy Spirit, and we're in agreement, and all we're doing is we're just shouting, come, Lord, come, Lord. Can you imagine? And the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, descends upon the earth. I don't know about you, but that is going to be one of the most glorious sights to behold. Amen? So why don't we stand and let's just pray.